Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. This is the first of a series of, I think, three or so um, events that are happening in the Poetry Collection this fall. So today we have Dr. Mary Catherine Kimber. I'm so excited to introduce her in a minute. Um, next Friday, we have Jennifer Bartlett and Declan Gould speaking in conversation, which is going to be incredible. And um, Judith Goldman, of course, of the Poetics Program is coordinating that event. Um, and then we'll also be hosting the annual Creeley Lecture. Is that November 3rd? So Friday. I remember, okay, awesome. Um, and that will have Jen Bourbon. So I want to make sure I don't neglect telling you all that I've curated a small exhibit of granary books and TKS books in the Joyce alcove around the corner. There are none of Jen's books in that collection, in that little um, archive because her books will come out for this other event. Um, so I do want to make sure you have the opportunity after the talk to talk to MC more casually, take a look at the exhibit. Obviously, we have some food, so I hope you enjoy today. Uh, for making this event possible, of course, I want to thank my colleagues Jim Maynard, Jason Bashir, Christopher Miller, Clay Connor, and of course, the UB Library's linked team, especially CJQ, Chris Chung, and Anne-Marie Schwartz. Uh, of course, I want to also thank Judith Goldman and the Poetics Program for co-sponsoring the event. And this event would not have happened without the generous support of the Andrew W. Mellon Society for Fellows in Critical Bibliography at Rare Book School, so I'm very generous for their support of this event. And of course, thank you all for coming out on a very gloomy, bleak, gray buffalo afternoon. Um, it is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Mary Catherine Kinnerborough. Mary Catherine is co-director of Granary Books, an independent small press and rare books and archives dealer founded by Steve Clay that has for nearly 40 years nurtured the artist books and poetry communities through publications, exhibitions, events, and archives brokering. As a scholar of 20th century poetics, MC has published with the University of Massachusetts Press in 2022, the monograph Wild Intelligence Poets, Libraries, and the, po and the Politics of Knowledge in Postwar America, a book that looks to poets to create a history of information science in the 20th century through an analysis of the personal libraries of Charles Olson, Diane de Prima, Garrett Lansing, and Audre Lorde. MC's scholarship has appeared in journals like Book History, Digital Medievalist, Journal of Early Modern Cultural Studies, and the Journal of Interactive Technology and Pedagogy on topics from digital literary maps of the Atlantic outlaw sagas to early modern bestiality to 20th century book history. She's edited two issues of Lost and Found, the Cooney Poetics Document Initiative on Gregory Corso and Mary Norbert Corte, and Among the Neighbors, issue number 19 on Maureen Owen's Telephone Books, the general series, of course, as many of you know, is edited by poetry collection cataloger Edric Mesmer. Um, we have copies here if you would like to take one home. Her editorial activities also include the experimental imprint TKS Books, a series devoted to creative approaches to literary archives in the book, through which she publishes Messy Archivist, a chapbook series that explores archival practice. She holds a PhD from the Cooney Graduate Center, was named a 2020 Bright Young Bookseller from Fine Books and Collections Magazine, and has had her work featured in The New Yorker, The Paris Review, The Poetry Foundation, and elsewhere. So, of course, we want to get to the main part of today's show, and I just want to say a few more words about why I'm drawn to MC's work. One is her commitment to the significance of vulnerability in archives and her willingness to articulate aspects of the archival lifestyle, life cycle that have been in various ways occulted. Through her work with Granary Books, MC works with poets, often in their homes, to bring archives to institutions. 
As she writes in Messy Archivist number three, quote, I honor the vulnerability it requires to surrender your belongings to another person's care, the vulnerability it requires to receive the belongings, to absorb their lessons, to be attentive and honest. This is the kind of vulnerability that opens one up to all sorts of possibilities, making the experience of working within archives, as she writes in Messy Archivist number one, quote, like being possessed by spirits. Sometimes it's like eavesdropping on the most fascinating conversation at the coolest party you were never invited to. And sometimes because we are talking about the papers of people here, it is so boring, it will reduce you to tears. I am also drawn to MC's work because of the ways in because of the way in which her life as an archivist and bookmaker informs her scholarship, creating a research methodology that's that's grounded in a tangible, physical, empirical human poetics. Her perspective on the untamed volumes encountered in poets' homes led to the central argument of her book, Wild Intelligence, quote that poets' libraries are not just book collections, but are rather a distinctive type of archival collection that reflects a poetics of information. This is the type of conclusion that can be reached only by living alongside the materials, talking about them with their assemblers, and finding a new home for them, or coming face to face with the reality that the ephemeral materials and archives are not always saved. So what I find so admirable and compelling is the way in which MC's scholarly practice is informed by her archival practice and the way her archival practice is in turn informed by her belief that it is as important to make a poet a cup of tea or do their dishes as it is to read their poetry. Community, in other words, is one of the central tenets of her work. So please join me in welcoming MC to our community today. the first view of the beach, my eyes grow wide at the waves. They're much bigger than I anticipated. I pull on my wetsuit at the shore's edge and watch the way the waves break. I plan my paddle out, wondering if I can take advantage of a small channel that I see in the middle of the jetties. I watch a few surfers struggle to make it out back past the impact zone. It's overcast and the waves seem to throw their own shadows. I walk into the water with my board and then paddle as calmly as I can, but as fast as I can. The white water comes and comes and comes. Finally, I'm out back. I sit on my board and look at the sets rolling in. The waves feel enormous out here, like riding on a roller coaster as they rumble through. Everyone is looking around to see who is brave enough to take a wave. I'm definitely not. On heavy days, there's always a moment when you realize that in order to get back to the shore with any chance of not getting clobbered, you have actually got to catch a wave. I'm watching the waves, waiting, observing other surfers for at least an hour. I paddle for a few, but I'm too far outside the zone where the waves are breaking to actually catch anything. And finally, it's time to go in. I screw up the courage for a wave that seems like a smaller sort of monster, and I paddle as fast as I can. I feel the wave catch the board. I look at the wave ahead of me. I stand up, and then I trip forward. The force of a wave is concentrated at the lip where the water begins to break. 
waves suck water back and up, up and over in the process of refracting off the surface of, or the bottom of the ocean. And once you've fallen, you want to go as deep as possible to avoid getting smashed by the lip, but not deep enough to knock yourself out on a sandbar. So I'm spinning underwater in November's Atlantic, Rockaway Beach, New York City. I pop up only to encounter another wave breaking right on my head. I hold my breath and I try and relax. The surface is the relief. Hello, everyone. I'm so glad to be here. Allison, that introduction nearly moved me to tears in the way that surfing experience definitely did. Um, this place has been my North Star for so long. The work that you all do in these collections, Allison, Jim, Edric, and just everyone who is part of the Poetics community here. It's a mind-blowing place. So it feels like a really special sort of homecoming to a place I haven't even been yet to be here. So thank you all for coming. I really appreciate your being here. And I had to start with a little bit of drama there because this is the collection that houses Helen Adams' papers, you know? And it's true that somehow amidst my many professional obligations, I decided I needed to learn how to surf. Archivists were paranoid about water, right? And here I am. I'm using archives' absolute nemesis to try and conceptualize the work that I'm doing. But before we dive back into the waves, I'd like to start by situating my relationship to the poetry collection in terms of the subject area that you all do here and to share a little bit more about my background. So I was trained as an academic researcher and I worked as a special collections librarian. And now I co-direct Granary Books as a publisher and archives broker. Many of you know Steve Clay, who's been at the helm of Granary Books for 40 years. This year, he invited me to join as a co-owner. So truly a special transmission. And I think many of you here also know that Granary Books is a publisher. For about 40 years, we've done both trade and limited editions. The limited edition ones you got to see in Allison's fantastic exhibition. Um, and with that, you'll see a lot of verbal and visual collaborations between poets and artists. And Buffalo has a nearly complete, definitely comprehensive collection of our works. And in addition to this, like Allison said, I have a little imprint called TKS Books, and it's handmade, very small editions. The stuff that's too weird or too ephemeral for me to want to try and convince Steve it should be a granary book, the sort of thing that you kind of want to whisper about or hand to someone, the stuff that you need to know. And TKS publishes Messy Archivist, which is what I'm going to be talking about primarily, as well as projects like the Diane de Prima Occult Library, Robin Blazer's cookbook with his friend, uh, with his partner, actually, Dave Farwell. And you can see um, Allison opened it to a page where um, Dave and Blazer are preparing for a talk at Buffalo. So that's the recipe that they were preparing as they were preparing for Blazer to come here. Um, other projects include an oral history of John Godfrey's archive, an alchemical poem calendar by friends. So this is what I do when I'm not attempting to surf. Poetry is one of the foundational things that I care about in each of these capacities, especially with, like you mentioned, Allison, the relationships and patterns and connections that 
define what it is we're doing. Um, patterns you can witness, like I think of, um, you have vulvus morphia out right now, which is a slappin' book by Carolee Schneemann. And you also have the Jane Wodening scrapbook open to a letter that Carolee Schneemann wrote to Stan Brackage. You did that on purpose because you're so good at your job. But it's exactly that type of overlapping that I really care about, and especially the ways that poetic knowledge intersects with other forms of what I would call professional meaning-making, like librarianship or work in archives. And I wrote a book on these intersections last year titled Wild Intelligence, Post-War American Poets Libraries and the Politics of Knowledge. And in that book, I explored what I felt was a really scarily simple premise that poets create libraries for their works and their lives. And sometimes those libraries are clear or visible to us, and sometimes they're not based on sometimes how institutions collect books versus manuscripts, but also things that are just very particular to poets' lives as people. In writing a book about poets' libraries, I was well aware that many scholars have done wonderful deep dives into particular authors' collections, including our own Jim on Robert Duncan. But what I wanted to do was see the forest, not really the trees, actually, and describe a poet's library as a unit of archival information to think about them, at, many of them at once, in all of their dazzling and varied forms. Specificity gives life meaning, of course, and it definitely drives contemporary research practice for good reason. But given that my thing is asking really audaciously simple questions, I'd like to ask what I feel is a related question that I use to define the parameters of this talk, which is, what is actually happening when we are with archives? Like, look at you beautiful people, look at us all here. Like, what, what is happening? What is happening? And I'm not asking what we're doing when we work with archives, because I have some better answers for that. Generally, when we define specific professional activities that we conduct upon archives, we're talking about preservation and access, the biggies. We conduct activities of arrangement, of description, of appraisal, conservation, and more to make archives visible, legible, available to researchers. And then when we research in archives, we do our best to be open to the documents, to see what the evidence says before we start bending it to our will, right? But even the most rigorously controlled scientific experiment conducted with an eye towards absolute neutrality, we love this word, and a lack of manipulation of results begins with a hypothesis, right? That if-then statement that attempts to predict an outcome and around which all assumptions are formed. Humanity's research is not radically different in this sense. How could it be? How could we just walk into a room, vibe an archive, and draw any conclusions without asking specific questions. So what are we doing with archives when we're not asking a research question about them and we're not doing a professional activity to them? I'm asking because I do think something is happening. I mean, look at this incredibly haunted space, for one. Um, 
something's happening, but I'm not really sure that we know what it is. And I've been really obsessed with this question for almost a decade now, toying with ideas about telepathy and haunting in archives, energy transmission, spookiness. So it is exactly this sort of vibing an archive or getting a sense of its archiveness and particular qualities that I am preoccupied with these days. I'm wondering if there is a fundamental or otherwise describable nature that characterizes our relationship with literary archives beyond the things we do to an archive. I'm, an ima I'm imagining a world where archives are like wind on the water as opposed to wind in a turbine, phenomena with their own energies and patterns that can be observed. This is what leads me to the question of surface and relief and concepts of depth and contrast. So let me share a little bit more about why I'm so interested in the vibe of what is happening in this open-ended way. While many folks know Granary Books for its longtime artist book publishing, as a result of creating so many specialized books that are primarily collected by research institutions, Granary Books was often called upon in its early years to negotiate between poets and curators on the placement of literary papers. And the first instance of this was Lewis Worsch's archive, which was placed at the Berg Collection in the late 80s. So this has become a full-blown aspect of the company, with Steve Clay, the founder, placing over 100 archives in his career. And in the past four years that I've been with Granary, I've done over 30. So what this looks like on a regular basis is working directly with the writers, artists, and performers to develop and conceptualize their archive, to catalog, process the materials, appraise them, and then place them at research institutions. So it's done at scale. Um, and I counted up the linear feet of documents that I've done. And it is, did someone just kind of groan a little bit? I think I just heard a, oh my God. It's 950 feet so far since I joined Granary. And for perspective, this is about the current depth of the Dead Sea. So that's nice. And if you want to think upwards, um, I do a lot of work in San Francisco because, of course, the gorgeous San Francisco Renaissance. So if you're looking at the Golden Gate Bridge, the distance from the bottom of the bridge that you can see at the water to the top of it is 750 feet. That's the measurement that really terrifies me. The Dead Sea, it's like, okay, cool, that sounds great. Um, the Golden Gate Bridge, to have gone 200 feet above that is scary. And I think the vertical comparison is indeed helpful because it feels like I'm going in a certain direction of depth as I continue to work with archives and also accumulate these experiences of working with collections so closely, but also at scale. And I know my librarians and processing archivists in the room, like, Edric, how many books have you cataloged? <laughs> You shouldn't have an answer. Yeah, that, it would be great cocktail party conversation. People would just fall over, you know? Um, but it's that volume does something. Something is changed in you by having so many encounters. Um, and that's the type of thing I'm really interested in here. Um, many of us will navigate this question, but I don't see a lot of literature that speaks to just what it does to you as a person. And I think it does do something.
um, beyond make you like an expert or things like that. It certainly does make you an expert, but it's not just that. So I'm using the word depth, but also surface here. In her article, Skin Tattoos and Susceptibility, scholar Ann Chang suggests that there's no such thing really as depth, only surfaces under surfaces. And while a surface level understanding per cultural conventions means a shallow one, to examine a surface is somehow to read it. So surface reading per Sharon Marcus and Stephen Best suggests that the elements at the fore of a text are the most important, that the in-depth hermeneutics of suspicion per Rita Felsky, I had her as an undergrad professor and she would, she would just pace the room talking about the hermeneutics of suspicion. Outdated, we don't need to go there. Um, claiming to uncover what a text does not say is not necessarily what we're about these days in literary departments. Surfaces materiality, Best and Marcus say, is a way of being attentive to the physical qualities of text and the contents they suggest. And surface patterns across texts is another way of reading for information and truth. So we're archivists. We can dig the idea that surfaces materiality. Look at the pieces of paper in an archive, your desktop, the table that you're working on, the faces of boxes lined up on shelves. These are all archival surfaces. And like other surfaces, like bodies of water, they can all be read for patterns that suggest what is ultimately going on. You don't have to analyze every molecule of water in a puddle to know that a little rippling on the surface suggests that maybe there's wind or maybe Bigfoot's coming. You just have to learn how to pay attention to the surface, that that's where the information is. And if you're looking closely, you might learn how surfaces behave in predictable ways, how ripples will look on the surface when they are encountering an underwater object you can't see, for instance. And this is a type of knowledge we can gain by observing our, our environment without actually intervening in any way or doing anything. Like many of you who work with language on a regular basis, I learn about things by writing about them. Because of that, I began writing a series called Messy Archivist in 2020, which explores archival practice broadly and creatively. These are short chapbooks that I write once a year, and I design and I print the books myself under the imprint TKS. And Messy Archivist for me is a really haptic thing. It's a process of reflecting and making and what motivates this series is writing all the things that are in between. It's really mortifying, actually, um, because it's not quite poems, not quite essays, not really academic, but you still see me citing stuff like Marcus and Best. Not really librarianship focused, though librarians are always the people I want to talk to. It's just the terrain that I find myself on at this particular point in time. Um, I think I will probably look back on Messy Archivist and go, mm, my God, in some way. That's the goal, anyway, charting the terrain. The first chapbook was about the etymology of the word messy and how I found myself in that distinctive moment when someone's desk drawer becomes their literary archive. How many rubber bands? You never know. The second was focused on the word need and how this shapes all elements of the acquisitions process. The third didn't have a keyword, but explored the idea of ability 
addressing questions of skill set and the more ambiguous call to archival work based on my relationship with Diane De Prima and her request to me as a grad student to place her occult library at a research institution, which happened last year. And the fourth is going to be probably a scrappy long poem about surfing as a metaphor for archival work. Just kidding, sort of. What I read at the beginning of this talk is the first page of the forthcoming Messy Archivist, and here is the second. The surface is the relief where a sense of orientation happens. Every time I open an archival box that I know, I imagine it as though with x-ray vision, reminding myself of the letters, drafts, exciting things below the surface of the paper's edge. A linear foot of archives is like a bathymetric chart. Beneath the surface line is an amazing array of happenings. And this kind of surface, you're imagining this neat box with me, right? This is indeed a relief processing archivists in the room. It's a very gratifying moment to have everything in a box neatly foldered and labeled. Sometimes materials arrive in this condition, but more likely it's a result of intensive work, sorting through what is and isn't relevant, smoothing papers, arranging materials by series, making sense of files. When we look at the ocean, even if we're close to the surface, we assume the real story is happening invisibly below our awareness and sight. This is not inaccurate, but there's plenty you can observe that offers evidence of what's happening below. For the ocean, this takes the form of waves, fins, scarily enough, light, and dark. A linear foot of archives is also like looking at the ocean from above. The texture of paper might suggest computer printouts that haven't been handled very much. Journals look very different stacked in boxes and file folders. Sheafs of full-length letters create a different shape than little gatherings of holiday cards. Colored papers in different weights might suggest ephemera immediately, like reading flyers or handmade chapbooks. But like the ocean, there's much untold at first glance. Even the smallest depth below the surface might be surprising. And what's at the very bottom might alter your whole understanding of your life. Like deep sea diving, there's serious restrictions on time, resources, and expertise that allow the true depth of archival work to be known. So much ocean and an ocean of papers, the metaphor holds in all directions. And yet an obsession with specific things, a species, a coastal zone, a poet, an era, can let us inch closer to what Charles Olson deemed a saturation job, or fully exploring a subject until everything about it can be known through all available sources. And Olson was really strict, definitely archive. With water, the depth below the surface is its own space, with its own creatures that might bite your toes, a lack of oxygen for breathing lungs, and impact zones for breaking waves. The relationship with depth is what enables surfing to happen at all. Waves break somewhat predictably and scientifically, depending on conditions, at a certain fraction of the wave's height versus the ocean's depth. So as I surf, or attempt to, I negotiate the surface versus the depth, knowing that one is necessary for the other. 
Too much time underwater at depth will rob you of your ability to breathe or to make any sense of the situation. That's where panic sets in. Too much, specific too much time in the specifics of an archive also, when there's a lot of ground to cover, has a similar disorienting effect. I remember my first intensive research trip. It was to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And I remember stumbling out of that freezing overhead lighting in their very well-staffed reading room, just blinking, like staggering down the steps. And it was July and I was freezing and disoriented and I just couldn't form a sentence. Like a deep sea diver, I've trained myself to go deeper, longer. But I think we have to collectively acknowledge that this is a muscle we build, not really a state of being with archives. The dive to the floor is different than the gentle bobbing of the anticipatory diver in the boat. And it is this gentleness that I want to harness in my thinking. So in Messy Archivist number two, I was focused on the word need and how this concept really just comes up in all dimensions of archival work. And towards the end of the chat book, I write, need pushes us out on a boat to meet what we have asked for. Once we're at sea, the nature of the request changes. Need is a sharp command expressed from the gut. Then comes the exhale, as need is continually expressed and its nature changes over time as a feeling and in the relationship to the knowledge of what it is seeking. Knowing the true nature of the object, of its desire or necessity, need instead becomes longing. I ask, what does this economy of longing look like against the economy of need? Are imaginative leaps more possible or a more honest acknowledgement of desire less shameful? Or is it a further ticket away from action into loneliness? From the seafarer, Ak ahafad longunga, sethe un lago fundath, but always has longing he who endeavors on water. So as you can tell, I've always been a little obsessed with water. And I want to cite Tristan Gooley, whose book, How to Read Water, yes, someone wrote a whole book about it, is a huge influence on how I'm thinking now about archival practice. And so navigating without a compass on a non-motorized boat is the specific activity that inspired the necessity of reading things on the surface of the water, like how waves refract when land is close but you can't see it yet. So indigenous Polynesian navigators are the ones who really developed these techniques because you have a whole lot of ocean and you've got variable reefs, you got to be careful out there. The thesis in Gouli's book is that by observing a puddle, it lets us extrapolate some of the bigger things about water, just like looking at the ocean. A puddle is just as useful as the whole sea. And really that there is a pleasure to this attentiveness that we can watch and learn without doing or intervening. And it is this spirit that I want to apply to being with archives. I imagine Ed Sanders' glyph of Charles Olson's book boat or per ed, all of Olson's book gathered knowledge that he used to embark on the Maximus poems, his epic work and his poetic life in general. And I think of the poetry collection at Buffalo, like a big sea of gorgeous heaving waves 
and all of us in this room, we're, we're in a warm and comfortable fishing vessel. You know, there's the, don't look out the window, there's, there's waves out there. We're navigating an enormous sea. And we're out here to find out what's going on, to catch some things. And those things might be easy or they might be very elusive. And we've all actually contributed in our various ways to the bathymetric charts of the poetry collection. We all bring our specific expertise. We've all done deeper dives. We say, oh, we know this area. I know this area. We bring our brains together as we, as we go forth on this ocean. And what will steer us where we want to be is the delight at the specific sightings along the way, that research level knowledge of objects, the items that we pull for show and tells or teaching collections, but also an understanding of how the whole ocean, whole ocean of documents behaves when we feel lost and it is dark and we need to sense intuitively where we need to be. And the funny thing about that word intuition is that we often devalue it as just a hunch when in reality, intuition is built by close observation, judging patterns, behaviors, cycles. An intuitive understanding of archives stands to be as studied and rigorous as a research understanding with different ways, different potential um, for ways of knowing and being with archives. And I want you to think of the difference between someone who handles rare books and archives all the time and someone who doesn't, looking at people's hands. You can see, you can see it instantly, right? It's in the wrist. You notice that? It's in the wrist. There's the intuition about how certain types of papers and bindings will behave when under fingertips. It's a predictive movement. I want to return to this question of what is happening with us when we are with archives. And I want to articulate a little bit more clearly the stakes of this question for me, because you, write, might, we, you might rightly suggest, in fact, that this doesn't really matter, that we all have our little jobs and tasks, our little piece of the archives pie, and that's that. And I say little in the sense of like little magazines, not little as diminutive, but little as in we're focused. That's cool, that's great. At the same time, those of us who work in this field want to expand it in specific ways because we're conscious of the precarity of the cultural record across the globe due to political circumstances, climate change, and we know that the learned white scholarly male trope that collected and defined much of this landscape isn't the only voice that we want to center. But we do actually really want to be attentive to the histories of these collections and how they've come together. And as we expand ideas about what our collections represent and contain, I think we also want to expand the notion of what is happening in archives and special collections. Research will, I hope, always be one thing and a powerful manifestation of an archive's potential. And I can't understate the magic of putting a single document in the right hands of someone who just knows and their contextual knowledge just broadens the whole understanding of a movement or a person through one tiny postcard or manuscript page. But I want to have artists, poets, civilians bringing their unique insights and talents to archives. And I don't just mean filling up reading rooms and having librarians explain things because I feel like conversations about expanding archives do librarians so dirty like that, you know? I don't think it's an outsourcing thing. And 
Some say we're in a post-custodial era of archives where it's not about outsourcing preservation and access to institutions, but inviting communities to provide for collections in some tangible way too. So when we ask this indeterminate, what is happening when we work with archives, we're also attentive to that who, where, and how. So I want to end with another metaphor, and that is the idea of relief printing. Of course, we're book people in here. We know this refers to the practice of transferring ink or pigment to a substrate using a surface that has a topography, highs and lows that create contrast, which is then transferred to the printing surface. The King Ubu poster. <laughs> when I think of poets contemplating printing, you guessed it, I think of Charles Olson. I love his statement in the Beloit lectures where he, he says, and I'm quoting here, the printer is under your words in order to make letters of them which always delights me as a problem of creation. In fact, I would go so far, if you will excuse my Americanism, to think that you write that way. That you write as though you were underneath the letters. And I take that a hell of a lot larger. I would think that the hoof print of the creator is on the bottom of creation in exactly the same sense." End quote. For some reason, whenever I read that quotation, I just find myself going like this. And Butterick, Butterick, this is a great place to be talking about Butterick as well as Olson, cites this in Olson and the Postmodern Advance. And he goes on and he says, when Olson was describing composing a Maximus Palman the third book, he described it as written as though below low water. Olson, as we know, lived in Gloucester, a cape in Massachusetts with significant histories based on its bodies of water, topography, and seafaring economy. And I gotta say, I hear the surf is pretty good there too, when you can get it. So our attentiveness to our life is our poetics. And relief as a word is so useful here because not only does it get at the contrast of depth that characterize printing as a technical activity, it really describes how surfaces behave, but also it's attentive to an emotion, relief. I feel that word viscerally. And one of the reasons I'm drawn to surfing is that the ocean is sublime, not like Burkean sense. I'm compelled by it, but I'm also starkly terrified of it. Every session, I've not stopped wondering what is swimming around my feet. And one time I got stalked by a seal. I won't forget that soon. But I actually, I feel this way about archives too. Um, fewer seals, but I'm terrified of their immensity, of the time they take, their precarity, my ability to get the materials where they need to go, and there's never any guarantees. And it's, it's immersive and it's, it's active too, like the scene that I opened up this talk with. Once you're out there, you're out there. You have to figure out how to get back in. And working on an archive um, before it enters a collection just has that tone. Um, you're always immersed in it. And I was telling Allison this yesterday, 
writing this talk was one of the first times that I heard my own voice in my head in recent memory. Normally it's other people's voices. So surface and relief are really apt here. They're a function of the stakes, really, of what we do, which we all feel strongly about, or we wouldn't be in this room. To conclude, I slowly slip below the paper line. Being on the surface of an ocean of archives is an incredible view, a terrifying mass. Birds signal the closeness of land. My librarians, the proximity of meaningfulness. The Mariana Trench is spectacular simply because the rest of the ocean is not that deep. You need to know the bathymetry of the whole ocean to know that. Without this, we will not know why we keep descending and why the ability to descend is its own miracle. Back to the surface. Thank you. Thank you so much, MC. Um, I think we have a few minutes for questions. And while people are thinking, I have some questions. Well, thank you so much for, I, I feel like you just gave us a new bibliography of archives, which is really exciting and new. And while you were speaking, I wanted to ask you, because I don't think that we ever talked about it before, what your first experience had been in research archives. Um, because I feel like this talk is getting at a lot of the same emotions that I had when I first encountered um, a collection, which was actually here in the Clark Coolidge collection. I had no idea what I was doing. And you speaking to the volume of, um, of archival collections and how overwhelming that can be, just as overwhelming as, as surfing on the ocean. Um, and then you gave us that great anecdote from UNC. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that moment in time, because I feel like it was very formative. Um, and if you have any, I don't know, words of wisdom for encountering the volume of archives as a researcher in her special collections reading room. Totally, yeah. Here, I'll, I'll join at the podium again. Um, I'm really interested in other people's thoughts about this experience, too. Um, I'm so excited we all get to talk at this reception because I just see your faces and I have questions for you all as well. Um, but UNC Chapel Hill is where I did my first intensive archival research. This was as a graduate student and it was under the auspices of CUNY Lost and Found, the Poetics Document Initiative, which publishes chapbooks from archival sources. And I was on the Diane de Prima Fellowship, so ostensibly I was going to research Diane de Prima. And I didn't know what I was doing. My advisor told me that um, her notebooks and scrapbooks were going to be the most interesting thing. And he was right um, among many interesting things. But I just remember wanting to know what it all looked like. I remember just wishing I could kind of see it all at once, which has really defined my career path <laughs> um, to be able to see it all at once. Um, we all have different roles whether it's researcher, librarian, dealer, um, with different levels of visibility. So I remember encountering that question of visibility early on. I remember how nice everyone was to me 
Emily Cater was the one running the reading room at the time, and she's now the curator of the collections and remains very committed to De Prima's legacy. So I felt invited in, and I also just felt like there was no way I would have enough time to see everything. And I kind of wanted to... I wanted to kind of see everything so I could prove that it wasn't just me doing what my advisor told me to, that I had evaluated the archive in my own way. But I really remember the physical disorientation. Reading rooms are freezing. Like, there's a reason you accessorize with a scarf. <laughs> like, A, it looks fabulous, but B, it's like, you know, it's cold. And you're looking, um, you get fatigued very quickly. And I think, in terms of advice, it's okay to have those feelings. You should really hydrate and pack snacks because hanger is a huge deterrent um, to deeper research of the scholarly record. Um, and spending time with the finding aid. You're going to be learning to read the collection in so many different ways. Be open to what the idea of reading or getting to know it would be. Thank you. Thank you. Other questions for Abbas? Yeah. Clearly, you have great experience and crafting for making things, or what you describe as the, the happy experience of being in archives, making books of all different kinds, TKS, artist books, and you know, even in your even in your gestures, you're always <laughs> making the touch. <laughs> I didn't think about that. <laughs> and I, 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 I want to ask, invite you to, to talk maybe a little bit about how you see or don't see this metaphor, this analogy of service and death in not print archives, but electronic archives. And whether, mm. um, whether those same metaphors apply to, say, the surfing emails that can be in a person's Totally. What a great question, because we we often handle digital components of archives. It's usually if I'm working with a contemporary poet or an artist, it's part of it. And the same practices apply. We we actually we talk even more about the nature of digital material to include, because so much of um, people's personal and professional lives are mixed in email for instance. And there's some great visual cues of file paths and file structures when you're thinking about digital, um, the hierarchy of folders within folders. It's definitely still a mechanism of depth. And when we inventory digital collections, usually there's some fascinating troubleshooting of weird equipment, too. Um, when we did Mary Cordy's digital material, um, she had a computer, a Dell, that was named Gertrude. She had put a piece of tape on it and said Gertrude, Gertrude Stein, obviously. And um, it didn't have, it was just the, the drive. It didn't have um, a screen. It didn't have a keyboard. She'd been living off the grid in Willits, California since the late 60s. So her tech was not cutting edge. Um, and I remember figuring out, okay, well, what do we need to 
buy to be able to see what's on this machine. How can we do it? How can I inventory it in a spreadsheet? So I think the level at which I'm interacting with digital files is still very much, there's still the physical thing there, but there's also a lot of cloud-based. I still think it's there. Now I'm self-conscious that I go like this all the time. <laughs> Um, but I am, I'm always reaching out to touch the thing. To me, digital feels just as tactile because I'm having to scan even more. Um, so in the same way where it's like looking at a box, okay, what's in this box? You know, if you're looking, okay, this is really high volume. I know it's going to be a lot of photographs or wow, there are not a lot of gigs in this archive. I bet it's going to be mostly word documents and PDFs of someone's research files. So you can still kind of apply that type of pattern sensing. In my experience, yeah. Thanks, Jim. Well, should we? I, I, oh, we have two. Sorry, okay. Hi, thank you for your beautiful talk. Um, so, so many different avenues, but I just wanted to ask you about um, the section before the end. Um, First, your um, that you brought up post custodial archives. So, just asking you maybe to comment on that a little bit. And right before you mentioned that, you were saying like, oh, you can hand, you know, sort of the key to all mythologies to the researcher. Like it's the one, like the postcard that's going to change that be the pivot of their mm. book or something. Or you can have artists in archives, and. Mm -hmm. um, I was just wondering if you could say a little bit more about the kinds of, or the alternative research that artists do um, versus um, more usual academic research methodologies in archives. Totally. That's a wonderful question. And I want to clarify that I don't think it's or. Okay. I, right. Hell no. I don't think, <laughs> um, I don't think researchers always have the bottom line, though to quote Diane De Prima in the Critic Reviews Loba, which is a scathing poem, it's like, where are the precise dates, equations, street names? Like researchers, we want those street names. We want those precise dates and equations. Um, but there's expressiveness that can happen on top of it. And to answer that part of your question first, I think Jen Bourbon is a brilliant invite because her work is precisely situated at that creative poetics of what it means to be a researcher, but also encountering in archives. And I even think of this um, amazing artwork that you have by the entrance of the Gregory Corso poem that has been created into an art object along with some sort of French warrant. Um, and the the adaptation of archival materials, whether it's the materials themselves into artwork or whether it's the ideas, I find that um, poets and artists are asking different questions than um, folks who are in academic appointments or doing graduate level research. There are different demands on our practices. And 
I want to think through those aspects. And I also just really think it's so important to go and say, wow. And I always want as much of that to happen as possible. That's what I've been doing here all day. And I think there's kind of a political and ethical stance to that of just that's, this is my commentary. Wow. That's I'm floored by that. That's my critical intervention in this work. Um, I think it's enough. And then the post-custodial. So I talk about this in um, my book a little bit, but there are strains of um, research in the field of archives, the professional field of records management, that suggest that the over-reliance on institutions to provide infrastructure and access resources for archival collections puts everyone in a compromised position where there's no way institutions will have the space or funding or staffing resources to truly take care of things without turning everyone who works in them to shells of people. Um, and the idea is that where appropriate, communities should be empowered to maintain their own records and participate in their own archival practice. And you see all sorts of cool examples of this. Interference Archive in New York City is an example of a worker-run and managed special collections repository. Um, another great one is the Lesbian Her Story Archive. Um, so these, these are spaces that are kind of collectively run outside of institutional contexts. But I want to say, I think, um, I think what happens at institutions is really in many ways the best shot for preservation of materials when it comes to that context. And I, th like, things are meaningless without context, right? And I think of the context overlapping that happens in a collection like this, where you know you can look through the walls and you can see these poets' libraries next to each other. And it makes sense to have like materials alongside like things. So I think the question becomes, how can we, how can we support those who work within institutional context to do what they need to do while also being responsible for helping identify and prepare materials, not just thinking, okay, I'm just going to put it in a box and take it to an archive because no way, you know? So that's to speak to that a bit. I hope that answers. Maybe a little bit. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Any other questions? Well, I know the MC is going to be here for a few more minutes. Uh, <laughs> so please join me in thanking her again. Thank you all for being here. Thank you again for that wonderful talk. Um, can you eat some food, look at the exhibit, um, ask MC any questions you have. Thank you again all for coming. Uh, it was really great to see you today.